Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. Hello, Guilty Feminists. This is Deborah, and welcome, welcome, welcome to this very special extra bonus culture episode of The Guilty Feminist. Well, I'm a feminist, but I do love a corset. The tighter, the better. Sometimes it's really fun if you can't breathe. I'm getting distracted, gang. I'm going down a cul-de-sac. I shouldn't be going down. I mean a Regency corset, mostly. And today I am so excited to bring on the director of the brand new film, Mr. Malcolm's List, which Jessica Regan and I were lucky enough to see last night at the Curzon in Mayfair at a very special screening. It's based on the novel by Susanna Lane. And the cast, wait for it, there's a, like, uh, do your own drum roll here. Frida Pinto, Chope Derisu, Zowie Ashton, Oliver Jackson Cohen, Ashley Park and Theo James. It is... An extraordinary cast. There are some fans. There are some bonnets. There are some carriages. There is a masquerade ball. It is everything guilty and everything feminist all wrapped up in one. It is released in the UK on Friday the 26th of August. What? That's today. You could get a <laughs> ticket to go and see this tonight. If not, you must try and see it this weekend because opening weekends really do help. And this is a female-driven film. It's female-produced. It's female-written. It's female-directed. Mr. Malcolm's List is a Regency comedy about a gentleman of means who is looking for a bride and makes a list of requirements that he wants to tick off uh, to make sure that he is getting uh, the right wife. Um, and this, understandably, incenses some women around him. Here's a trailer. Miss Dalton, it is common knowledge you have been cast into this world without fortune or prospects. It is my desire to have you as my wife. I am greatly honoured by your offer, but I cannot accept. This offer will not be extended a second time. Third, actually. Out of my way, idiot geese! My dearest Selina, will you come visit me in London? I promise you will be well entertained. I need your assistance. There is a gentleman, Mr. Malcolm. He humiliated me. No. I then found out he had a list. You have a list of qualifications for a bride. I would love for Mr. Malcolm to receive the comeuppance he deserves. Plus, it could be rather fun. 
if we present you as the perfect woman, then he discovers he does not meet the requirements on your list. That would be a perfect sort of poetic justice. Mr. Malcolm, there's someone I want to introduce you to. Miss Selena Dalton. I'm very pleased to make your acquaintance. Perhaps you might join me for a tour of the picture gallery. Most certainly have a reputation. Is that the famous Mr. Malcolm? Do you know him? And do you believe this description of me? He was very impressed by her wit and humor. I must be nearsighted. May I assist? Selena, it is working. Why did you come to London, Miss Dalton? Because I was lonely. I was lonely too before you came. Your list is a shield. You do not want to give your heart to a woman unworthy. It gives us hope, and hope is a good thing. Perhaps I am mistaken in thinking hope a useless thing. You're being blinded by his intelligent conversation and devastatingly handsome good looks. <clears throat> what? You thought to humiliate Malcolm, and you end up presenting him with the perfect wife, and that must sting. Wish me luck, old boy. I don't think you'll make it. It is time to show Malcolm your list. I do not think Mr. Malcolm is the man you think he is. Seems you have been deceiving me from the beginning. Love cannot be planned so carefully. It will stir things up a bit. That is part of its charm. I saw it last night. I was absolutely delighted by it. So I am absolutely thrilled to welcome my co-host today, who also came to see it with me and at the end of the film was sobbing, sobbing next to me. And it was a comedy. She's a romantic. She's such a romantic. She was in a Shut she up. was in a comedy puddle. Um, <laughs> she is a very well-known actress. Uh, you will know her from BBC and Showtime's Ill Behaviour. You will also know her from Doctors and lots and lots of brilliant theatre that she's done, including The Worst End. Uh, she will also know her. If you don't, you should get to know her from The Best Pick movie podcast produced by the Spontaneity Shop. Please welcome the incredible Jessica Regan. Hello. Hello. And today we are lucky enough, we are lucky enough to have in our studio here at Spontaneity Shop headquarters at The Guilty Feminist, the wonderful director whose vision Mr. Malcolm's list was from the short to the feature, the wonderful, the talented the brilliant director, Emma Holly-Jones. Hey, welcome. Welcome yeah. and congratulations. Um, Emma, it is just so wonderful to have you here. I can't believe you've made a whole brilliant feature film with all of those beautiful costumes, beautiful, beautiful cinematography, beautiful, beautiful scenes. And the heart of it feels really feminist but you've given me all the guilty trappings that I know and love. So thank you for making such a guilty feminist film. I mean, I think I think that was definitely my direction. I was like, I I love the movies of the 90s and I love the rom-coms and you can watch a few of them back now and they're slightly problematic in places. So I think a big part of this for me was trying to recreate that tone and find that feeling for an audience today. 
Well, that absolutely happened because I echo that. I'm such a fan of films of the 90s. You know, me and my friends, we were we were teenagers and it was kind of period films like Emma and Sense and Sensibility mm. was where you went to see sophisticated storytelling um, that was, you know, that you were allowed in because, you know, in Ireland, the rating systems, there was 18s and, you know, you couldn't get to like the adult films, but you were beyond, you know, children's films. And that hinterland was occupied by period, but it was very homogenous and it was... It, you know, you, you weren't exposed to any kind of diversity in casting and it just became very normalized and you became used to that landscape. So that I was I was a soppy puddle by the end. But I think also the feeling that like my friend who I would watch these films with, her daughter is now of the age where she could go to Mr. Malcolm's List and she will see a very different cast than I did. And that's what really got me at the mm. end. And that's why the fake eyelashes you lent me came right off. <laughs> yeah, this is consciously cast. So could you talk us through what drew you to the script, the theme, the subject matter, and also what was your decision around conscious casting? So um, I actually heard the script for the first time on the Blacklist podcast, which they were doing table reads of scripts at the time. So about seven years ago. So it's actually an amazing way to find a piece of material because you, I was driving my car so your mind sort of can really go wild. You know, you're actually, you're not reading as much uh, direction. You're really just listening to a bunch of actors sort of interpret these roles. And the same week I saw Hamilton and I called my now husband and I was like, Mr. Malcolm's List in the style of Hamilton. And he was like, I think you might be onto something there. Because this was seven years ago, this was pre-Bridgerton, you know, mm. it was just as Hamilton was, you know, at its peak smash in the beginning of yeah, its run. We were watching the YouTube clips like, you know, mm. and going, what the hell is this? And it was, honestly, I came out of Hamilton and I really had to think for a second about why this entire genre has looked the way it's looked. And then, it sounds so silly, but I just asked myself the most basic of questions. When did I think, I'm, I'm sure this is the wrong word, but immigration started in the UK? Mm. And then I realized our visual sort of uh, exposure to that question is through Hollywood films and, and TV shows. And it's not accurate. No. They are completely whitewashed and all it takes there's a couple minutes in Google and you can find paintings and poems and songs and art. And Jane Austen, Sandition, had a, you know, mixed race lead character, which they've actually, you know, portrayed correctly in the most, most recent TV show. So that was enough for me. I was like, there's so much there for the plucking. And, you know, I always asked everyone who came into the film, like, when do you think England started to look like the melting pot of cultures it is today? And I, I, I guess my answer will be when they decided invented boats. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I'm not a historian. But all I know is what Lin-Manuel Miranda did completely sparked a different sort of thinking for me. Mm. And that was enough. And it was that way or no way. And I also realized, as as you said, like, you know, taking your uh, friend's daughters, like there's, I have no interest, whether it's a period film or, a, you know, a present film, whatever I do, I have no interest in making a movie that doesn't look like the world that I live in. And, you know, um, mm. we all live in. And so that was enough. And I think 
the most wonderful thing about that is when I uh, optioned the material and I hired this amazing black female casting director called Tamarly Lockhart, who is an incredible friend. So she really held me accountable in this entire process. Like whenever, you know, I had an issue with a financer or trying to raise the money, she was like, you know, she really held me firm. Because sometimes you're so desperate to get a first film made that when someone tells you to make it X way or, you know, sometimes Mm, you can be tempted. But she was absolutely incredible. And I think the most amazing thing uh, for me was when I started to meet this cast. I mean, it's the thing that everyone talks about. They are absolutely incredible. And getting to meet them on, you know, some of them on the short film and some of them on the feature, you're allowing unbelievable British talent to stretch their legs in a genre they know, a genre they've consumed and never have an opportunity in. So they're sort of the characters and the shoes they're walking in are actually so fresh, so funny and so alive. And the energy was phenomenal on set. But yet there is this timeless grace that they bring to it as well. It does feel so fresh and modern and yet it is all the trappings that we love. For me as well, the, the kind of the, the lineage, like to see his mother as well. Um, so I'm talking about Shope Dirisu, who's Mr. Malcolm, who's our titular hero. And to see the regality of his mother and just her hair, her mm. beauty, her strength, her power. And you just you just want more of that now. Yeah. It, whitewashed adaptations are going to seem um, so, they're not going to sustain, they're not going to hold. It will feel regressive, I think, mm. for us to go back to any kind of homogeneity mm. after Hamilton, after work like Mr. Malcolm's List. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that you planned this before Bridgerton came out because presumably Shonda Rhimes had the same idea. And it's so great to see like minds at work changing the landscape. Mm-hmm. And you know, what we don't want this to be is a fad or a phase where we go, oh, we've done that now. And I think it won't be. I really do think we also had David Copperfield. You know, I think I think it's huge. Bell, Amarasante's Bell, like Bridgeton, us, mm. Hamilton. We actually none of us were the first. And as you say, like hopefully none of us will be the last. You but know? it feels like you're at the fresh beginning of an exciting new movement, and that's a wonderful thing. As a female director, I know it's very difficult to uh, get stuff made. Do you feel there was extra energy because you had conscious casting or would you have got would you have got more money or less money if you had not done conscious casting? We would have got more money if I'd done it the way I think every period of drama had looked. I think there's no doubt in my mind about that. You know, I'm no expert on foreign sales. Um, but, you know, I think there is... It's spoken about all the time. You know, Hollywood is not great at diversifying how it spends its dollars and who it invests in. And, you know, I think it's a lot easier um, for people to put money into things they deem less risky. And sadly, there's a lot of people and a lot of companies that think newer, fresher, female, you know, uh, talent, directors, writers, and then actors of color, you know, are more risky. And that is something I think everybody in this industry deep down knows is still a problem. Well, we discovered while we did research for um, our podcast, Best Pick, that a film like Carmen Jones uh, made more when it was released, you know, um, black film, black cast, made more when it was released than the Best Picture winner that year, which was on the waterfront. These films have made tons of money, Mm. but the messaging is that it's harder to sell. That's never been true, actually. Cinema began 
um, with a with a black man on a horse, you know, like I just think that is that is a myth that is sold. I think there's other myths out there as well that can be digested. That um, oh well, everything's diverse now, and if you're a white actor, you can't get work. That's absolutely wrong-headed and insane, mm-hmm. and rhetoric that we really have to push against because it's just not true. Yeah, the industry is missing out on a profit margin by not investing in talent that looks like. The audience. Mm-hmm. So that is that simple. Actually, the uh, Franklin Leonard, my husband, did a incredible study with McKinsey on literally mm-hmm. about the dollars that are lost because of the lack of investment in diversity across That's the board. It's huge, isn't it? I read yeah. that study. It it's was amazing. Phenomenal. It was so fascinating. It's insane because those films do brilliantly the box office. They also oh Oscars. Female, they, you know, female audience. Just stories written by and directed by and created by and about women. Like you know, about yeah. about women for women and by women. Mm-hmm. And the by women part of that is the most important thing because I I think often they'll like get a female rom-com sort of Nora Ephron writer mm-hmm. and uh, then everything else will be done by men and it's sort of fleeced somehow. Yeah. It sort of feels almost like we're giving you ladies what you want and it's like whenever it's done fully driven by women, not Nancy exclusive, Ma- Mayors. You, hundreds of millions. You you feel a different kinship with mm-hmm. it when a woman is really driving it or women more accurately are really driving it. And also inspiring young people. I think, you know, I have talking about what it is to become a female director, like when I was at school and I said I was interested in the film industry, I was told, Oh, you want to be an actor? Mm. And I was like, No, don't think so. And they were like, Oh, you should do stage management. Mm. And I was like, no, don't think so. So that, you know, I think now there is more female driven content. It's more inspiring. I remember actually, I had a really clear moment when I watched the pilot of Girls, with Lena Dunham's Girls. And I remember thinking, I have never seen a character like this on TV. And what I was seeing was something that reminded me of myself. I remember that pilot just being like totally moved because... I had never seen a flawed young girl mm. on television having, I think it was, a, you know, a bad hookup in the first episode that was also very funny and very awkward. And I was like, but that's what it is like. And she's I, the pursuer, not the pursued. Yeah. And I remember feeling like totally moved by that. And and I think, you know, I, I also when I saw the um, female Ghostbusters, I just was like, you, I was totally moved by that as well because I was like, I've never seen an action movie that's just all women and it was totally moving. Hello, Guilty Feminist. This is Deborah, and we are at the Edinburgh Festival. On the 25th of August, my co-host is Celia A.B., My guests are Cordelia Stevenson, Jake Wakeley, Josie Underwood, with music act Jess Robinson. On the 26th of August, my co-host is Jessica Foster-Q. Our guest is Sakisa, and our music act is Grace Petrie. On the 27th of August, my co-host is Sindhu V. My guest is Rosie Holt, and the music act is Flo and Joan. On the 28th of August, my co-host is Alison Spittle. My guest is Jambi McGrath, and the music act is Grace Petrie. Get your tickets now for The Guilty Feminist at the Edinburgh Fringe before they all sell out. We're at the Gilded Balloon TV at every day at 2pm from the 25th to the 28th of August. And now back to the podcast. How do you go from being 
not a director mm. to a director? Because how do people trust you with that much money? Or how do you convince people to trust you with that much money? Well, the short film was a big part of that. So when after I found the script on the podcast, you know, that was, as I say, that was seven years ago, um, I found some producers, uh, Laura Rister and Laura Lewis, um, to sort of come on board and try and get this made with me. And I think as a first-time feature director, obviously I was directing, you know, short films and commercial and documentary stuff before that. But to take that leap and that jump, especially when you're out there pitching a period drama in theory as a genre, you know, a lot of people are like, mm, not sure about that for a first time. And like Netflix categorically told us we don't finance period for first time filmmakers. So I knew that I very much had to make a proof of concept. And that's where the short film was born from. And we were very, very lucky that Refinery29 had a short film fund for female directors. And they were incredible because you cannot make the short film we made, which, by the way, you can still watch on YouTube on Refinery29's uh, YouTube you cannot make that scale of short film for, you know, 10, 20 grand. And Refinery29 gave us a good chunk of change to go make this short film in England with all the bells and whistles. So it really was a proof of concept. I couldn't have, you know, grabbed a horse in Griffith Park and <laughs> grabbed an actor and tried to turn LA where I live into, you know, Regency England. So, um, not the weather, not the weather, my friend. No, it was, you know, sunny all the year round over it there. Like a western. It would have <laughs> looked like a western. Malcolm That's what happens western. to Malcolm's western. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely not me. I'm still too British for the western genre, I think. But the, um, when we finished the show, I was very adamant that I didn't want to do short film festivals. Like, and I'm sure a number of people won't agree with me when I say this, but I felt as a filmmaker, I needed to prove that there was an audience for this. And I thought I can put it in a short film festival and a bunch of really nice people will see it in a small room and then nobody else will ever see it. So I put it on YouTube, on Refinery29's YouTube. And I wasn't expecting it to blow up like it did. But it really did. And it got millions and millions of views and comments. And that was amazing because we could, I could literally walk into pictures and be like, oh, and here's 20,000 comments from girls all over the world saying they want to see what happens next. Oh, and this so is smart. This was called Mr. Malcolm's... List the Overture. Mr. Malcolm's List the Overture. Yeah. But if you just put Mr. Malcolm's short film, it comes up. And it was obviously Frida and Chopé uh, were Malcolm and Selena in that. And Oliver Jackson Cohen was Lord Cassidy. So Tamara... That's when Tamara, not casting director, got involved. And a lot of the crew from the short came all the way through the feature all with the us. All the, so, that and must be a testament well. to you, though, as well, yeah. that you were able to, like, you know, so much of, of being a director is is marshalling the troops and, and, mm. and being a unifier yeah. um, and, and a go-between of departments. Mm. So that, that must be a real testament to, to how you work. Yeah, and I think short film was, you know, it was a really good way for me to throw some stuff at a wall and see what sticks. I mean, obviously we spoke about casting the film the way I cast it, but also I realized in that short film that it wasn't as simple as just giving these roles to these incredible actors. I had to really think about how I designed the film. And one of the things I'm most proud of with Malcolm's List is you don't think about the cast when you no, watch the movie. No. You think about the characters and you go on their journey. And that's a huge testament to all the department heads who worked on this film and the cast, because we all work collectively together to make sure that every set, every costume, every hairstyle was 
considered and created for the actor playing the role, just as you would in any other movie or any other genre. So you spoke about the hair, which is one of my favorite details in the movie yeah. because Donna Kroll, who is legendary in oh, this she's movie. A leg- she's amazing. She has locks. And, you know, me and Eileen Buggy, this incredible hair designer in Ireland, so we shot the movie in Ireland. We were like, what are we going to do uh, with, you know, Lady Kilborn's hair, which is just part of the process. And I didn't want to just shove a wig on her. I was like, I couldn't do it. And I was like, can we turn her locks into a period hairstyle? Because I actually think that's what our Lady Kilborn would do. Mm-hmm. And... Eileen just jumped at the idea and when she came out of a, you know, hair test, a trailer, and I saw that, I felt that we were onto something. Mm. I was like, it was that hairstyle that made me go, holy shit, this is going to work. I really noticed it because I thought, yeah, that's what a woman of that period would do, that it was this matronly high hairstyle that we're used to seeing from that period. But the actress has locks, and it's the, her hair. It's her and black I thought, well, hair. This character yeah. has this character has locks turned into that same period hairstyle, which of course women must have done. Yeah, and also Chopin's afro. Do you know how many yeah. conversations me and Chopin, you know, Eileen had about like the length of the afro, you know? And I actually really left it up to Chopin, you know. I was like, he needs to feel this, Malcolm. He, you know, and obviously, I don't want to give too much away, but Chope wrote some lines in Yoruba and injected them into script. And it was all about, for me, these actors working with any department they felt they needed to work with to feel these characters and make them their own. And another really cute one, which I love telling a story of because so many people won't notice it. And the point is you're not meant to notice it. It's just meant to exist and it's meant to build a world and the world that has these people in just makes sense. And that was my job to curate all those people connecting and working together to create that visually. But obviously one of the big things for Frida Pinto was costume. So her and Pam Down spent a lot of time. Also, by the way, in 1818 in England, we were getting most of our prints and fabrics from India. So, you know, we would actually do a lot of historic research to the cultures at the time. So all Frida's costumes, we were like subtly embedding like paisley prints and Indian color tones and Indian fabrics. And then very, very cutely, Pam and Frida and Chope came up with this idea that as the movie goes on, Chope's waistcoats turned paisley oh. in tribute to Frida's Indian culture. Nice. And it was like, it's really cute. And you'd never notice, but everything from like, the tea in Dalton Cottage is Rubio's tea. It's not an English or grey, mm. you know? Like every detail was considered by the team of people who worked on this movie. That's the difference between doing the damn thing and not just paying lip service. Mm. None of us wanted it to be gimmicky. We all And I said to everybody who came onto this movie, I'm no expert. The actors really are experts at who they are. And we're going to figure this out together but it's gonna be a very prep heavy movie. And if you're not down for that, this isn't the job for you. Mm. And luckily I found the most incredible crew who really embraced it. What were the hardest parts about making this movie that you can speak about in public? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Because I'll know, I know there'll be things you can't speak about. Um, I think, look, I'm here as a first time feature director and I got my film made. And as you said, I'm not gonna sit here and say it's so hard or it's this or that, because I actually did it. And I think, you know, 
there's a that it just proves that there is a way and there are people out there who are willing to say yes. I think COVID of it was damn hard. What, at what point were you in COVID when you made this? March 2021. So pre-vaccine oh level five lockdown in Ireland, which was gnarly. So I directed my entire first film with just my eyes, mm. which is actually something I didn't really get to think about until I was really on it. Because when you're working with actors, and they can't see how you're responding in your face, you know, that can sometimes be tough, you know. And by the way, anything, especially a comedy, when you're hoping people are laughing or you're hoping things are funny and none of the crew you can see. But it was wonderful because every now and again, because we were all wearing masks, it was almost like we were holding it all in that sometimes just the entire crew would just break at Zowie and Ollie and Divian. Like, and those were really joyful moments. But no, the COVID of it was really hard because the the cost of COVID uh, really we had to uh, take out of our budget. So I had to find to cut like I think it was like four hundred thousand euros or something in the two weeks before we started shooting to pay for COVID safety. Wow, Ouch. yes, that's an enormous number of yeah. fans and ballrooms. And how I know. lose? It's uh-huh. a lot of background artists we lost. Actually, that was the big sacrifice. Yeah, and I never so noticed. actually I didn't a lot of fans. I didn't no, think it, it didn't look sparse at all. You, you made it work. Um, I've got to ask, how did you get on in Ireland? I loved it. How did you get on with the Irish crew? Oh, they're amazing. I, I, I'm just, I'm such fans of them all and they're all so incredible. I think, you know, we had a lot of quarantines to deal with. So we really hired locally in a lot of areas and we were just so lucky. They're incredible. They deserve to have a really rich, full industry because the talent out there is is huge. And also... The locations that we got access to were absolutely incredible. And I hope if you see the movie, it really is beautiful. And a big part of that is is the Irish architecture and the landscapes and everything. But they were all they were all absolutely incredible. I honestly I'm gutted. I spent four months in Dublin. I absolutely loved it. And I didn't go to a single pub. Emma, we're going to have to remedy that next chance we get. They They were were all all shut. My rap party was in, hey, we close on Good Friday every year. (laughs) Whether we need to or not. We're not not, indeed. (laughs) My AD team on rap day took me for a pint in a car park sitting in in the boots of our cars. Show so, business. Yeah, it was, it was, it, so I'm, I'm desperate to go back and actually have a holiday and go eat and drink my way around Dublin. I'll send you a list. Well, I think you've turned out a remarkable film with a really happy cast. Uh, last night, it was really lovely when Chope came up on stage. He picked you up and span you around. He now, keeps I, doing that. He did it on uh, set all the time look, as I'm well. I'm a feminist, but I'm a real sucker for that. And I'm so sorry to say that. But <laughs> I'm a feminist just, for shopping. Could you do that to me any time, yeah, exactly. <laughs> But when he did that, I thought, oh, this was a really happy set. Because mm. I've been to many screenings where the actors come up and the, the gritted teeth, the smile. And yes, it was a yeah. wonderful experience all throughout. But you know full well that it, it wasn't because you know someone in the cast. And, oh, it was quite difficult. <laughs> and I think the fact that the actors were so happy on this set and... Like Zowie said to me, anything I can do to support this film and to support Emma, I had such a wonderful time. Um, She's remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. And what I just adored her performance. I mean, I I, I thought everyone was excellent, but. She's so funny. At one point, I was looking at her clavicles going, How are your clavicles acting? How are you doing that? She's a comedic genius. Yeah. Um, Like, it was hard because she'd be like, Any notes? I'd be like, Nope. And I think that's a big part of being a director sometimes is like, as I was saying to you before we uh, started this chat was, 
a big part of directing, I think, sometimes is allowing the space and freedom for people to really be their best and bring their shit to the table. And if you create, my whole goal was to create an environment where people could up me in better ideas. And then, but hopefully have an environment that when I did have to say no, there was total respect for that. And that was my goal as the director, to really allow myself to say yes as much as humanly possible. And when I had to say no, for people to be really okay with it. That's mm. an actor's director. say yes so much. That's well, an actor's director. Yeah. That's someone who really wants to get the best out of you, but but also knows that you have that outside eye and for your own good. And to still get the best of you, I'll say no here and I'll say yes there. Mm. And that's, that's mm. very good to hear. I think reasonable people really respond to a no if they've just had three yeses or that's interesting let me think about that or you know Mm. and it's not just no 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 someone's telling me the other day about being on a set with a director who was just constantly killing the energy and making people feel low and then complaining they didn't look bonded and it's like well you're not going to look bonded on screen if you're tearing them down I love this atmosphere that you're talking about. And also it's my job to figure out how they work best. So figuring out whose coverage should go first into close-ups, who needs a little bit more time here and not making a big deal about it, who really needs to, you know, get some energy out. Like just creating a schedule with your AD team, Mm. which is something the actors are not even aware of, Mm. that really works for them so they can come to set and feel the things they need to feel. And I think that's one of the biggest things I learned was just how much actors really do need to believe everything they're saying and feeling and doing. I, I knew that in theory, but I never quite got it till I saw this level of talent walking in those shoes. You want to feel like a collaborator and you have to earn that to an extent, but you don't want to be treated as like a mere puppet who's totally replaceable, you know, like, and I always think as well, and I don't know how you feel about this, but I feel at times um, the culture is to keep the cast and crew very separate and mm. in, in, you stay in your lane. And I feel like the more bleed you have between departments, the, the better the the thing. Like, you, you know, because an actor can save you a shot if they can, you know, throw it over their shoulder, if they feel like they can offer that up. All these things, we can all help each other out, make it work, be collaborative. Yeah, and by the way, when you're shooting a movie for $6.8 million in 27 days, sometimes you need to say, and I had to do this to Ollie once, and he was really, and I remember, you know, the scene uh, where Frida comes to London for the first time, and Ollie doesn't say much in this scene, but he's absolutely hysterical in this scene. It was a big old scene. There was like a lot of dialogues. It took all day. And I, you know, had a lot of angles. I was in, you know, full 360 in the room. So I was really trying to move this camera around fast. And when I got to Oliver, I was like, I'm going to need you to do everything you can do in this one take because that's all I've got time-wise. And, you know, he was really game. So it is is just important sometimes for when you are in a sticky situation, to be able to count on your actors to yeah. get you through as well. So it, it, but then you, that's trusting them, isn't it? And understand and giving mm. them, throwing the, an actor that ball of that challenge. Yeah. How wonderful oh, to be told, give okay, it to me. <laughs> Jess, you've got one take. We want everything We've from got, you. It's like, like exactly. every let's reaction let's face you can this. possibly yeah. give You're, me, Oliver. Yeah. And he and he he was incredible. But he's wonderful. Actually. I have to I go back to Zowie because Zowie is uh, obviously an incredibly talented writer. Mm -hmm. and an incredibly talented director. 
And she came in very last minute to this film. And she saved this film, one. Uh, we had an actress drop out two weeks. You talk about what was hard. Two weeks before? Two weeks before we started <sighs> oh shooting. Oh, my God. Um, it was Constance Wu, which I'm comfortable to say because I, I knew it you know, it was obviously announced that she was in the movie and the movie was financed with uh, with her. Um, but, you know, she did drop out two weeks before. So we were actually very panicked that the movie wasn't going to survive and we were all in Ireland and all in prep. And I, I feel sick. And, <laughs> I mean, these things happened at, at for the, a reason. And, but also at the highest level, you know, I've, uh, you know, you, you hear mm. these stories in Hollywood. Um, you hear these stories in, you know, a friend of mine who's, an A-list film star had it, you know, with something she was producing. You know, it, it just, it it, people drop out all the time. Unfortunately, it was, you know, the reasons were her reasons. And I've always said, you've got to be in on a low budget movie 120% or actually do us the favor of dropping out because otherwise the film suffers. I think what was scary in that moment was we didn't know if the finance was going to drop out, right? Um, so it takes so much prep and so, so much prep. Yeah, you're so well in. Pain. When we say two weeks before it starts shooting, that means you're so far into prep. Like this, so, that this... means every costume had to be remade. And you got to remember oh that actresses' God. heights were extraordinarily different. Mm. But the silver lining of this very stressful period was, I think, that the right person for the role came in, mm. and not only that, she pushed me harder than any any person's ever pushed me creatively because she came in and she was like I need to make what's on this page mine now and she pitched me the Bridget Jones of Julia Thistleway in 1818 and I was obsessed with the way she had taken you know this script and we were up late nights in prep and, and during shooting rewriting things and developing ideas and we had a lot of rehearsals for you know with everyone so the chemistries were all and obviously really built very quickly between a lot of them, but very, very genuine. Like mm. her and Oliver Jackson Cohen's chemistry on screen is exactly the same in real life. I think they're like long lost brothers and sisters, really, those two from a different lifetime. That was um, a lovely relationship as well. Yeah. You know, to see that kind of like almost like brother, sister, that those teasing cousins kind of connection. And it's really charming. Zowie is extraordinary. And she's extraordinary in this movie and she made it better. And, you know, she deserves every accolade she's getting for this film. Well, so. I hope there are BAFTAs a go-go. Um, we've got to wrap up. But can I ask, Emma, is there anything you came to say you didn't get to say? I think what I want to say is to people who are thinking about uh, you know, going to see this movie um, is I've been describing it as a warm cup of tea and it really is comforting. It really is feel good. And it really is, I hope, a rom-com for 2022 set in 1818. I think this shows also uh, brilliant, flawed women who know how to manipulate the power of female friendship, the ability for women to be rivals, unexpected rivals, uh, there's a lot of feminist stuff in here as well in terms of allowing women to be flawed, um, analysing women who are able to run rings around men. Uh, and it is the women's story. And also you can be imperfect and unredeem yourself and have forgiveness and redemption and, and come to an understanding. And find your match, by the way, as yeah. we learn in the movie. So, you know, it's true. 
the, it's so true. It's yeah. not I just like the rom com. Yeah, not it's, just bad guys, but mm. what's interesting is watching someone be the kind of bad guy you can sometimes be. Yeah. If you let your your worst imaginings run away and you actually did to them. I think yeah. we've all probably had those imaginings. Of Most of them don't. And we go to the, you know, we go to the theater or we go to the cinema for catharsis to see somebody actually follow through and not just think, well, I don't know what I'd do. Yeah. Uh, exactly. you know, but actually see exactly. someone do it. But mm. also, you're Get not a bad person. Yeah. You're just a person who acted on a bad thought. And she gets a happy ending. You know, yeah. they all do. Spoiler. Spoiler, sorry. Well, I mean, like, I say this. It's a feel good film. I say this to everyone. I'm like, they're like, some people have been like, it's predictable. I'm like, no shit, Sherlock. (laughs) Like, I think we know what's going to happen when you look at the poster. But the trick is to take you on the journey and all those things you just so Mm -hmm. graciously mentioned. And we all worked so hard on doing. It's not just a love story it's the love story between women mm, and it's very a story so. you know I broke all the rules of historical accuracy with these girls I was like they can go where they want unchaperoned they can go to horse auctions mm. they can play croquet with the boys because frankly they can shoot. I can you mm. know they can shoot guns they can be mm. part of this genre in the way that women should have been and it was so much fun to do those things. But also, there always were women that did those things that broke the of rules. And they, they were just seen as rule breakers. But, but yeah. you know, of course there were women who, who went and did those things. But uh, it wasn't the thing to do. And mm. so let's watch some women who did those things rather than women yeah. who did the thing to do. Or who just took turns around the room. Mm. You know, yeah. you got a feel for, for those early bright and We still got one around you the room. Did. There was a turn around the room. It was which an emotional I thought turn around the room. That's, I sometimes have to take a turn around the room. I'm not going to lie. I really empathize with that part. It's a wonderful thing yeah, to do in life. Great. Excuse me, oh, please, may I take a turn yeah, around the room? I think we should take more turns around the room. Because I don't need to see my eyes right now. Exactly. I'm about to kick off. It was absolutely brilliant. Please, everybody, go out, support a female-directed, written, and driven film. And also, you get to see the wonderful Zowie Ashton for no extra money. Please try and see it at the cinema if you can. If you can't, where will I be able to see it? I believe it will be coming on demand at the end of the year. So, yeah, get out. Mr. Malcolm's List uh, is your new favourite film. Uh, thank you so much, Jessica Regan. My pleasure. Absolute so pleasure. Well, thank you for making this film. Thank you for having me. Hello, Guilty Feminists. It's Jessica Regan here from Big Speeches. Well, as the price of everything is going up, we have decided to lower our prices to make this training as accessible as possible. I teach the Big Speeches workshop for Guilty Feminist online on Sundays. Our upcoming dates are August 28th, Sunday, and September 25th, also Sunday. Both workshops take place at 3.30pm. And they'll run for three to four hours, depending on the number of attendees. We've lowered our full price tickets and our subsidized tickets. So do book as fast as you can, as they won't be around for long. Really looking forward to seeing you. Thank you for bearing with us. We're very happy to be back. Please go to guiltyfeminist.com forward slash big speeches to book your place now.